0: Hallelujah. My name's Nick, and I go to this church. Hi. Nick. Hi. Um, how many of uh, you in here um came to know uh, Jesus? I'm not talking about just saying a prayer, but came to know Jesus in a real way that was very different than you knew him ever before since coming to this church. Okay, praise God. How many of you have been filled with His Spirit for the first time since coming to this church? Praise God. How many of you have received uh, healings or miracles since coming to this church? Okay. Uh, How many of you uh, have been uh, or are being directly discipled since coming to this church? Okay. Uh, How many of you have gone through marriage counseling since coming to this church? Okay. Praise God. Um, Today is a very special day. It's Sunday. I've been... I think some people are on edge about what I'm going to say. Um, My feelings about uh, what is normally celebrated on this day, I think are not a secret to most of you, Um, but I can't deny the way that the Lord has told me to communicate uh, something that He has given me a conviction about, Uh, that uh, it would not be done through tearing down what is, but by building up what it is that He has shown, okay? Okay. So what I'll say is this, if you want to look into the history of where this has come from, you may say, well, if I look into the history of everything, then I wouldn't be doing anything. If it's pagan, okay, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you were given an alternative. So let's say this, if you had a dollar bill that you know had different pagan symbols on it, and then another dollar bill that was actually given to you by God that had all sorts of glorifying things, on it and you literally could use either one but actually the one that had all sorts of glorifying things was worth more than the right what would you which one would you use the one that had God glorifying things on it right it's worth more this one's only worth a dollar this other one's actually worth three dollars and fifty cents something like that right so you've got two dollars that have been given to you one has been given to you by society this is your dollar. The other one, and it has all sorts of pagan symbols on it, it's only worth a dollar, okay? It's actually not even worth anything, really. <laughs> yeah. The other one is worth two and a half, three and a half times more than that, and it has all sorts of God-glorifying things on it. Which one are you going to pick? One that's worth more, right? In fact, raise your hand if you would pick the one that's worth more. I think that's 100%. And if it's not, then there's an issue of rebellion in the heart. <laughs> So if we've got the choice between one or the other and one is worth so much more and the other one really isn't even worth anything, why would we continue to use what is not worth as much? You say, so what do we do about it? I'm glad you asked. On April 30th, this church is going to celebrate the spring festivals. This is, past. I guess, when I'm here, here. Unleavened bread and then first fruits on April 30th at our new church building, which is is 211 North Virginia. Okay. We're going to start at seven o'clock and it's going to be an experience for everyone. Okay. If you thought picking up Easter eggs and getting candy and dressing in pastels and eating chocolate shaped animals was fun. Wait until what you're doing is actually a command given by God come from His Word. I'm telling you, not worth anything, worth so much more. Okay? April 30th, the entire church is invited and everyone that you know is invited. Everybody is invited. Okay? And I promise you, you will enjoy it. Okay? That's my plug. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> Today we're going to talk. Man, I feel like I'm going to have problems for like the rest of the time. Is that okay? Just keep roll with it. Okay. All right. Have you guys ever heard of a guy named Emmy Lichtenfeld? Have you ever heard of Krav Maga? Yes. Raise your hand if you've heard of Krav Maga. So this guy Emmy Lichtenfeld started it. Okay. He was Hungarian. He learned kickboxing, street fighting, all of these things. And, but he was actually Israeli as well, so or Jewish. And then when Israel was formed, right after World War II, okay, he moved back to Israel and then began studying this art that combined all the things that he'd learned and all the ways that he'd been trained to fight. And he called it Krav Maga. So he learned it actually means contact combat. So Emmy Lichtenfeld learned how to, and if you guys have never looked into Krav Maga, it's, uh, it's about the craziest uh, kind of fighting that you've ever seen because they'll go anywhere and do anything. There's no like off limits. In fact, normally the off limits in other sports is like the targets in this f- style of fighting, okay? So they go to disable and they go to kill if necessary. So their intent is to maim or to destroy. The way these guys train, they'll sit in ice buckets and control their heart rate. So that it doesn't change. And they just learn to survive in any environment. And then if they get into a fight, not to keep going, but to immediately hurt, maim, or kill their opponent. So it's intense. Krav Maga. Well, there's this other guy whose name is Ron Mizrahi. You guys ever heard of that guy? So Ron Mizrahi started training with Emmy Lichtenfeld at the age of seven. So from when he was a little boy... Everything that he learned about Krav Maga was from the guy that started it. So Ron Mizrahi, at the age of seven, is there any, how old are you, Grayson? Eight? So look at Grayson. Grayson, stand up on your chair real quick. Right? So around this age, this guy starts training four times a week with the guy who started Krav Maga. All right, you can sit down, bud. Which means that all of his resources, all of his energy, all of his time, everything was devoted to learning Krav Maga from the guy who started it. He was trained by the finest Krav Maga uh, teacher in the world because he was the one who started it, right? Day in and day out, trained in a gym, his diet, the way he was educated, everything revolved around this sport. So now Ron Mizrahi has been doing Krav Maga for over 40 years. And he is what's called a grand master of Krav Maga. He's the only one in the world. Okay, uh, can you bring up the picture of Emmy Lichtenfeld first? So this is the guy who started it. Not so bad looking, uh, bad looking dude. But you got to remember, this is kind of you know down the road for him. Check out Ron though. Something about this guy just looks like a killing machine to me. <laughs> so this is Ron Mizrahi, and today he still trains. So he's recognized all over the world in this sport. If you ever learned about Krav Maga, if you ever went through it, you would know this guy. Because right now he is the grandmaster. What we're going to talk about today is how Jesus was like Ron Mizrahi. A lot of us, whenever we start to dissect who Jesus is and why he did the things that he did, we think there's just something special about him. And he was just, he just glowed with this. And the things that he said, it was just, I mean, he was God though. You know, I'm me and I've got my nine to five and I've, you know, i got to take care of responsibilities. I'm not like him, but I like to read about him. It's like watching Braveheart or Gladiator. I'll never be those guys, but I, I like to think, you know, maybe one day, you know. So we begin, we begin to read the Bible and we're so aware that he's God but not very aware that he's human. The problem way back when Jesus walked the earth was everybody recognized that he was human. They were like, we know this guy. We know where he comes from. We know his dad, right? He grew up. We saw him as a little boy. We know him. The problem was that no one saw him as God back then. Everyone saw him as a man. But now one of our biggest problems is everyone sees him as God, and we can't really understand him as a man. Why is this important? Why is this series so important? Humanity of Jesus. It's important because if Jesus is God and God only, it doesn't have much hope. His story doesn't have much hope for Chuck, right? His story doesn't have much hope for Mike or Paul or Jackson because he's God and so he does things that I can't do, right? He does things that we can't do if he's just God. And it's like, he did miracles. Yeah, he did miracles because he's God. He talked about loving your enemies. Yeah, because he's God. Right? The things that he went around and did, the way that he was able to stay on the cross, I wouldn't have stayed on the cross. Well, he was able to do that because he's God. So a lot of the things that he did become unrelatable for us, and we can't really glean anything from that because he's so much different than we are. But today, what I want to look into is the culture that Jesus was actually raised up in that would have had an enormous effect on the man that he would be. And I want to talk about this for a second. What if Jesus believed that by faith he was the Messiah? What if it wasn't something that he just knew intrinsically? But what if it actually required him to have faith that he was the Messiah? There was nothing that actually proved it to him. Okay? He had to believe it by faith. Let me start off with this question. Someone shout out. You guys are going to have to be very interactive today. Someone shout out, how many times do you think that God actually spoke to Jesus in the Bible? Someone shout out. A number. All the time. What else? Daily. What else? 24. 24-7. Yes. What else? Anybody else? You know how many times he spoke to him? Once. Three times. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased at his baptism. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then he says, I have glorified my name. I will glorify it again a week before he's crucified. That's it. That's all we get. Okay? When you think about the things that Jesus did and the way that it was, how much credit do you actually give to his culture? How much credit do you give to the way that he was trained up and taught while he grew up? I want us to read some verses today that hopefully begin to unravel how we see Jesus so that when we walk out of here, we go, he was just like me, just like me, not kind of like me, but just like me. Look at Philippians 2.6. Now, I would challenge, if I say something that's not according to scripture today, please, Come up and talk to me about it. But if you simply think that I'm being too unbalanced in presenting the humanity of Jesus today, that's my point. So I won't defend that. That's just my point. I'm trying to expose and explain and reveal the humanity of Jesus. Next series is going to be divinity, in which we'll talk about the divinity of him. And I promise you, just as unbalanced as it seems today, it will be unbalanced then as well. But in the end, we're going to get a picture of who our Savior is. Amen? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Look at verse 6 in chapter 2. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So let me ask you this. Did Jesus understand or embrace equality with God? No, we just read it. Praise God. Good. We're off to a good start. At five years old, Jesus, as a kid, remember? Ron Mizrahi, right? Seven years old, begins to be trained. If, let me just ask this question. If he were to get into a fight and win, would someone say that it was luck? No. What would you say? He's, he's, he's been trained. He's a machine. He's going to beat anybody that he fights, right? At five years old, in the culture of the Jews... One is fit for Scripture. They can begin learning Scripture. How do they learn it? They don't memorize songs. The wheels on the... That my daughter knows every single nursery rhyme that exists. Kids have a memory. And at five years old, the entire focus is training them to memorize Scripture, period. What if that was your kid's only focus? Just to memorize Scripture, starting at the age of five. The songs that you would sing as you're cleaning around the house, working on things, a man's working on stuff, whatever, would be songs of Scripture. You'd be singing Scripture all the time. Scripture everywhere. At the age of 10, the kid can start learning the Mishnah, the oral Torah, the interpretation. So they continue on and finish learning the rest of the Old Testament. But during this time, they begin to learn the Mishnah, the oral tradition, which basically the Jews believed... It was so important that it was actually given at the same time as the law on Mount Sinai. So when Moses receives the Ten Commandments, he also receives the oral traditions that go along with it. So the Mishnah is held in very high regard to the Jews. So when at 10 years old, all little Jewish kids begin learning the Mishnah. At 13, for the fulfilling of the commandments, what does that mean? At 13, little boys became men. We don't really know this culture, right? But little boys became men back then. They would hold a ceremony, and it was literally, now you understand the commandments. You are a man at the age of 13. It's just interesting how there's also some confusion about when a boy becomes a man in our society as well today, isn't it? But back then, there was a definite moment in time where they went from being a boy to a man. What are we missing in that? Teenager! We're, we, we, we miss that in that culture. It doesn't really exist. They go from being a boy to a man. At 15, the Talmud, so rabbinic interpretations. They begin to learn everything that the rabbis that had gone before them used to say. A rabbi's yoke was his interpretation of the scriptures. So when a rabbi would interpret the scriptures, he would say, for instance, a Sabbath's walk. Like you're supposed to do no work on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Because I've got to get out of bed, I've got to brush my teeth, I've got to use the bathroom. Do I make my bed, do I not make my bed? If I'm going to eat some cereal, can I go downstairs in the basement to get the cereal that I like, or do I have to eat the cereal that's from the cupboard? Right? All sorts of stuff like that. Like, who's going to answer that question? Well, the rabbis did. That's what they did. So they gave you interpretations. All the rabbis had interpretations on the 613 commands that were given. The kids would begin to learn these rabbis' interpretations. And they would actually memorize them as well. Everything about their culture revolved around the word. It's very different than our culture today. Okay. But what we're trying to do is take you back this time. At 18, the bride chamber. I looked all over the place. Could not find what that means. Okay. At 20, they would begin to pursue a vocation. These are the ages that are given. And they would begin to learn whatever their father's trade was, whatever the business of the family was. They'd begin to learn it. And that's what they would do. Unless they became a disciple, who then became a rabbi. But that was a very, very small number of people. And then at the age of uh, 30, they now were able to teach others. At the age of 30. What age did they find Jesus asking questions? and giving answers 12 right and he says didn't you know that i'd be about my father's business jesus was lined up according to where he was supposed to be as a child he was learning the way that he was supposed to He was being educated says that they were amazed at his questions questions aren't amazing if my son comes up to me and says dad why is the sky blue i'm not like that's an amazing question son That seems like a very natural question, but their society was different the way that they'd ask questions. For instance, if you came up to me and said, what's two plus two? And then I said, what's eight divided by two? I would be giving you an answer and also demonstrating a deeper understanding. So you would be impressed by my question. This was called the art of romance. And they were actually skilled in being able to ask these questions even at the age of 12. So they found Jesus doing what any Jewish kid would have done because that's what they're being trained in school, right? If you want to ask David what he's interested about, right? He's waving his hand in the back there. You ask him, he's going to be telling you about things that he's learning in school right now. You ask my kids who are being homeschooled, ask them about what they're learning about. Miss Kim just did an awesome uh, uh, teaching on the weather. Taught them all about the weather. So that's fresh in their mind, just like Jesus asking questions at the temple would have been fresh on his mind as a 12-year-old. What age did Jesus begin his ministry? 30. Same way that anybody else. Now here's what's crazy. Jesus was actually raised in Galilee. Some of you might know a few scriptures that talk about, can anything good come out of Galilee? Has a prophet ever come from Galilee? You guys ever heard that? They're kind of like being derogatory towards Jesus. Well, go back and look. And what you actually find is that the most passionate Jews in the world were in Galilee. Galilee was way more passionate about the Torah, about rabbinical teachings, about the discussions that they would have, going back and forth in debates about everything, than the Jews who were in Jerusalem. We think that the Jews in Jerusalem, that that was like the epicenter of what was happening, of teaching and everything like that. But it wasn't true because some Hellenism even worked its way into the Jews who were in Jerusalem, which is all sorts of different pagan practices and different things like that. But in Galilee, something special was happening. There was strong devotion to family. There were spirited debates about the Torah. And they were learning all sorts of things their entire lives that were to even, an even greater degree than they were learning in Jerusalem. So Jesus was raised in Galilee in that environment. Think back to Ron Mizrahi, right? Being raised up. That dude was focused on fighting. His entire environment was about fighting. Everything that he learned, he learned what other styles of fighting there were, where things came from, the origins of things. Where were other ways to do these similar things? What was the correct way to do it? The correct way to fight. In fact, right now, Krav Maga a little bit of an epidemic because all over America is popping up places that are calling themselves Krav Maga but aren't true to the original. And so they actually appointed him the authority to go in and say, this is not right. You're not doing it the right way. You're not fighting the right way. This is not true to it. You need to take that name down. Jesus, when he says, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. When I heard that said before, what I thought that that meant was he came to do everything that was in the law. That's the way that I used to describe it. It's like the things that are in the law, Jesus is going to do all of them. So that's what he means by that. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. But what that actually means back in their time, the word fulfill actually means correctly interpret so that you can obey the way God intended to teach. When he says, I came to fulfill the law. What he's actually saying is, I came to teach you about what it says and how to do it correctly. It's a little bit different. And if someone teaches incorrectly so that you can't do it the way that God intended, that's called destroying the Torah. I want to read you a few different uh, things that might sound familiar that other rabbis had taught on by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene. Do you guys remember when it says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery? But I tell you that anyone who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You remember that? People read that and they're like, man, Jesus did new things, man. He said stuff like this. Like before it was, uh, adultery was if you committed the act. But now it's if you even have lust in your heart. Man, Jesus is really taking it to another level. Another rabbi before Jesus Said, in regards to the commandment, do not commit adultery. It has been taught, explained Rabbi Simeon, son of Lachish, that anyone who commits adultery physically with his body shall be called an adulterer. But we say to you that anyone who commits adultery with his eye shall be called an adulterer. Who said it first, Jesus or this guy? This guy. But Jesus learned it, didn't he? Right? Let's keep going. You guys remember when he said, if you forgive others their trespasses, you'll also be forgiven by your heavenly father. But if you won't forgive them, then you won't be forgiven either. Remember that? Another rabbi before him said, everyone who is merciful to others will receive mercy from heaven. Everyone, however, who does not show mercy to others will not receive mercy from heaven. Who said it first, Jesus or this guy? Jesus learned it from these guys. What about this one? Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will have enough worry in its time. Let the day's own trouble be sufficient for that day. Right? Jesus said that. I hang on to that promise. But look at this. Do not worry about tomorrow's trouble. You do not know what a new day will bring forth. That's from Proverbs. It's Proverbs 27. After all, tomorrow may come and you will be no more. Then you will have suffered trouble over a world which is not your own. Jesus was learning these things as he grew up. How about this? Do to others what you would have them do to you. The golden rule. Jesus said it, right? There's a guy named Hillel that taught, what you do not want someone to do to you, do not do to them. This sums up the Torah and the rest is commentary. Now go learn it. This is what what Hillel said. In fact, Jesus went and called his disciples. Normally, disciples came and interviewed with the rabbi so that they could come and join. It was revolutionary that Jesus went and called his disciples, except Hillel, the guy we just read about, also went out and called his disciples. From the rejects. Listen to this. Everyone who hears the word of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his house upon the rock. The rain came down, the flood waters rose, the winds blew and beat against that house. It did not fall because it was built upon the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine, however, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his house upon the sand. The rain came down, the flood waters rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell down, and great was its crash. Another rabbi before Jesus said to one who builds a house by laying a foundation with large stones below and then builds with bricks above in order that no matter how much water may flood against its foundation, that house will not wash away. But the person who has not done good works, even though he or she has learned much of the Torah to what is this individual like to one who builds a house, laying a foundation with bricks below and then stones above so that even if a little water flows against the foundation, it will at once destroy the house. Once again, something else that Jesus learned The very society that Jesus grew up in trained him to be a machine when it came to the Torah. In the same way that Ron Mizrahi, when he was raised up, was taught to fight, was taught everything about fighting. And when he was raised up, he knew exactly what he was supposed to do and followed it to the T. In the same way, Jesus was trained up. The prophecies about him in the Old Testament 353 prophecies so that by the time he gets to this earth if his mom is telling him Jesus I want to tell you you're a special boy an angel came to me and told me that you would be the Messiah I want to show you where you are in scripture and then she picks up starts reading from Isaiah I want to tell you about what your future is I want to tell you about who you'll be I want to tell you about the things that you'll care about, about the way that you'll treat people. I want to tell you about the way that you're going to learn, the things that you're going to do, and then ultimately how you'll be betrayed. But don't worry, because God is going to raise you from the dead. And then ultimately, you're going to return on the clouds, and you'll come to save the whole world. Jesus, before he becomes an adult, is told about everything that he'll do. Over a hundred prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament alone tell him what way he's going to be and what kind of man he's going to be. Actual things, like if you say to Josh, Josh, later on today, you're going to go and you're going to find someone and they're going to give you $5. I want you to turn around and pray for them and their foot's going to be healed. And then Josh says, okay, and then begins to go live his life and these things are unfolding right before him. Someone gives him $5. He's like, This must mean that I'm supposed to pray for their foot. And he prays for their foot and their foot gets healed. And he's like, wow, it happened just as it was said. So those kind of prophecies, there was over a hundred of them on Jesus's life alone, the way that he would live. So that as his mom is training him up, she's telling him all the things that he's going to do and all the ways that he'll be. In fact, you guys remember when he says the son only does what he sees the father doing? You remember that? I can only speak what I hear the Father, I can only do what I see the Father doing. That's actually a term that referred to that apprentice level between the Son and the Father. For instance, Jesus' dad is a carpenter, right? And his dad would tell him, do everything that you see me do. And people would say, the Son only does what he sees the Father doing during apprenticeship between a son and a father. That phrase that he says comes from his culture. I only do what I see the Father doing doing and that word see there is not just it also means to understand or perceive I only do what I perceive what I understand the father to be doing where would he have gained an understanding for what the father was doing right here he's reading about what the father has planned his entire life I want to read you some of the the cool prophecies from this for instance the lamb would be presented to Israel four days before Passover. Something like that. Like, how did he know that he was supposed to go to Israel now at this point? Or go to Jerusalem for Passover? Like, why did he know Like, it's now time? Because he read it. He's trained up to be an assassin, a machine, to know the Torah. He memorized all this stuff. Not only did he memorize this, he memorized the commentary on it. And what all the rabbis before him had said. Cyrus had two prophecies about him in the Bible that were written. And it's believed that Daniel, the prophet, came to him and showed him. It's like, Cyrus, here's your name. Isaiah prophesied about you like 200 years ago. He's like, what? By name he prophesied 200 years before today. And then Cyrus is reading like, I'm going to set him free. I'm going to go in through an unlocked gate. And then literally the way that he took over Babylon was going down into the riverbed. And one of the gates that led into the city was open. And he opened up the gate and walked in the way that it had been prophesied about 200 years before that. And then whenever he's actually fulfilling the word that he would help the Jews rebuild, he's do- it's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did he do it because he read it? Or did he do it because like that's what he was going to do and it just happened to be prophesied about beforehand? It doesn't matter. He did it. Right? Same way with Jesus. He was living by faith. Jesus lived by faith. Listen to this. His character, he'd be merciful. That's how he's supposed to be. Is he, are you he supposed to be hard? Is he supposed to be judgment? No, he's merciful. The leper gets cleansed. And that would be a sign to the priesthood. He would suffer outside the camp, outside the city. The serpent on a pole would be like him. Did Jesus know he was going to die on a cross? Yes, he did. Jesus knew that he would die on a cross, just from the prophecies alone. First Chronicles 17, 13 says, I will be his father, he will be my son. The crucifixion and the resurrection are talked about in Psalm over and over again. Life comes through faith in Him. The resurrection is predicted again, over and over the resurrection. Literally, just, just on the cross, look at this. This was prophesied about most of these in Isaiah and Psalms. But listen to this. The servant would be bound willingly to obedience. But way before it even happened, all these things were stated in the Word. The servant would be bound willingly to obedience. It says, I gave my back to those who would strike me. And my cheek to those who would strike me. I would be spat upon. I'll be scourged. They're going to seek my death. My blood will be poured out when they pierce my side. I'm going to suffer agony on Calvary. I'll thirst. They're going to pierce my hands and my feet. They're going to strip me before men. They're going to part my garments. I'm going to commit myself to God. I'm going to say, it is finished. I'm going to say, into your hands I commit my spirit. My acquaintances will flee from me. They're going to take counsel just to put me to death. So they're going to have a meeting about it and then they're going to put me to death. I'm going to trust in God and then He'll deliver me. Not one of my bones will be broken. Uh, false witnesses will rise up against me to lie about who I am. I'll be hated without cause. My friends will stand off afar. Enemies will try to entangle me by craft, but I'll be silent before my accusers. I'm going to be confronted by my adversaries in the garden. That's from Psalm 40:14. I'll be betrayed by a familiar friend. I'll have anguish before I go to the crucifixion. My soul will be exceedingly sorrowful. And then I'm going to be given vinegar when I thirst. I'm going to send the Spirit of God. Blind eyes will open. I'm going to open blind eyes. And then I'm going to speak blessings and good tidings on the mountains. Remember Matthew 5, the Beatitudes? And it's God's will that I would die for mankind. I'm going to be presented to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And then I'm ultimately going to return to the Mount of Olives. These are just some of the prophecies that Jesus would have read about himself. Let me ask you, if he simply believed that he was who God said he was, and then the rest of what he did with his life, he got from scriptures. I am telling you, there is enough evidence in the Bible to support that way of thinking. There is more than enough evidence in the Bible to support that he simply believed he was who God said he was, and the Bible said he would do. That rocked my world. When I'm reading about this, and I'm like, I thought that Jesus just had this constant contact with God all the time. God's just like, go this, go this, go go here, like say this to that person, say this like this, and it's like then put your ears on this person's ear like this. No, not like that. Like this, right? Go heal that man born blind. Like, just put a, no, no, no grab the mud. Spit in the mud. Oh, get, like this? And like, that's what I thought. That's how I always pictured it. It's like, go to the cross. Don't worry. You go to the cross. You, you're going you're to heal everybody. It'll be fine. Like, seriously, you're okay. You're encouraged. What well, we actually see, it looks like Jesus isn't hearing anything from God from the garden until he gets to the cross. What does he ultimately cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was it so hard for him in the garden? He's reading about these things, and it's like, man, I hope this is true. Boy, I hope all this stuff is true, right? Why? What he was about to go through, man, I'm telling you what, go to to Luke 2, 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Man, that's beautiful. The exact same words were spoken over Samuel. And the boy grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Go to Hebrews 4.15. Think about the idea of God... Like, Jesus is God in flesh, and it says that he learned. He grew in wisdom, meaning that, like, he didn't have as much wisdom right now as he did after he learned some things. The idea of God learning, literally down to, like, the smallest, like, the way that your molecules are formed, like, he's the one that thought all this up down to like the expanse of the universe and, and like uh, systems beyond systems outside of our... I mean, it's like all... He, and then it's like, but he had to learn. That's crazy to me. Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So think about this. For the longest time, I thought, Jesus was tempted, so what? He didn't have a sin nature. That's what makes it difficult for all of us. The other day, I was thinking, I was like, wait, Adam didn't have a sin nature either. And he was tempted, and he sinned. So I guess not having a sin nature doesn't make you immune to sinning. Something about that, like that, I don't get that yet fully, right? But what I'm understanding is, just because he didn't have a sin nature doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted. In fact, we see that he was tempted. And then what we're about to read about is that he suffered when he was tempted. It hurt him to be tempted in that way. In the same way that I've been tempted, I'm like, oh, I really want to do this right now. And it's like, uh," and then I don't do it because it hurts. It's like, oh, I really just want to do this right now, you know, and to not do that. It's like, you know, it hurts. It hurts right? To not be able to do it. So that's the way that I read that. I don't know if that's right. But we read, we we heard from Gabriel's sermon about his emotions. That he was what? He was greatly troubled. He was overcome with sorrow to the point of death. God. I mean, if he's got that constant voice in his ear, just telling us like, don't worry. It's all going to do everything's fine. Seriously, don't worry about, I mean, it's you're God, you're me, right? You know, but he was overcome with sorrow, even to the point of death. He got angry. Like really angry. He wept. He was filled with wonder at someone's faith. All these things that make him look. You it... remember whenever he we went to go to the temple, we always talk about like he flips over, you know, flips everything over because he's so mad at everybody for turning it into a den of thieves and robbers, right? He goes in at the beginning of his ministry and inspects the house finds that it's not right, that there's thieves and robbers in there that are doing the money changing, that are taking advantage of people. But he goes back to the temple at the end of his ministry and does the same thing. And then he says, not one of these bricks will remain on top of another. Even that whole thing is from Leviticus. We read about the mold and the mildew. The idea was you go and inspect the house You find that something's wrong, then you leave it alone for a time, a perfect time. And then you go back to it. And if you find that it's messed up, then you say, tear all the bricks up. Don't leave one brick on top of another. That's literally the language that was used in Leviticus. All this stuff that he did, it's all here. And it's all from the parables. You thought Jesus spoke in parables. He came in mysteriously. He spoke in parables. By the time that Jesus comes onto the scene, he spoke 46 parables. There was 3,500 parables recorded by the other rabbis. Go to Hebrews 2. Look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those... Who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers. What does y'all say right there? In every way. Anybody else to say anything different? In every respect. He was made like his brothers in a lot of ways. In every way. He was made like us. Oh, you're about to see why this is so important. We're about to see why all of this is so important. What the crux, what the point of all this is. Okay, so he was man. We see that over and over again. I mean, geez, you know. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me ask you this. The guy who is our representative, Jesus, our representative, he goes before us. Something that you see out there in the world. When we have people who are elected officials, do we want someone who doesn't care about us or who does care about us? does care about us. Do we want someone who understands the things that we're suffering so that they can represent us well? Ideally, I'm not talking about like the way the world is now today. We can just all agree that the whole thing is just messed up, right? And you can vote if that's your conviction. That's awesome. I'm not telling you not to vote. Don't get sidetracked on it. Stay on track with me, okay? I'm I'm talking to myself here too. But the point is, is that you want a representative that understands the things that you're going through, right? So that they can argue and intercede and work on your behalf. Because if you're suffering in the sewers and your representative has no idea of what's going on and instead they're just going to nice dinners and drinking nice drinks and driving nice cars and everybody's high-fiving each other and you're living in the sewers and they're the ones that are supposed to fight for you at a level that something can be done about, then they're not going to do a good job. But if they came from the place where you're at, you know that they're going to be working on your behalf, don't you? Even if there's an accuser coming and being like, "They don't need any help, man," they deserve to be in that sewer. You want a representative that's going to be like, "No, no, no. These are worth investing into. These are worth making clean. These are worth giving here. These are worth us ruling and reigning with. You want a representative that knows your struggles. Look at Hebrews 5. Look at verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. When I stop and think about that sentence, it starts to make me think. The idea that Jesus was crying loudly out to God to save him from death. That's different. He was crying out to God to save him from death. But then here's, it goes even, even deeper. It says, uh, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. God's like, I hear you. I hear you. You're still going to die, right? And I'm actually pleased to crush you, right? These things were prophesied about. This had to happen this way. This was how mankind was going to receive salvation. Jesus had read these things from when he was a little boy. He knew without a doubt that when he grew up, this would be his fate. This is This would be what he would do. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. How did he learn obedience from what he suffered? Is that too distracting? Should we just turn it off? Okay. How did he learn obedience from the things that he suffered? How do we learn obedience? From our comfort and our gifts and the the vacations and the wonderful things that we have. That's how I'll learn, Lord. If you'll entrust me with billions of dollars, I will literally give hundreds to everything that you want me to. Whatever you want me to do, just to everybody. Just everybody, Lord, just trust me. If you'll give me billions, everyone, I'll make it rain. Hundreds of dollars, just everywhere that I go. So many hundreds of dollars, (laughs) right? How do we learn obedience? Through what we suffer. You ever heard someone say, I've learned from my mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. And just like even in the explanation of it, it's like they're just telling like, I'm, I'm, man, I've, I've done a lot of things and I've learned from my mistakes. You don't learn from your mistakes. That's not how you learn. That's a load. I'll tell you that. Just because you make a mistake doesn't mean you learned anything. You want to know how you demonstrate that you've learned when you're put in that exact same situation and you do something different. Then you're learning Is demonstrated until then you haven't learned I killed somebody and now I'm here behind bars but I learned from my mistakes if you were put back in that exact same situation you would do it again if someone riled you up the wrong way you would do it again come on he was made perfect by what he suffered Because he learned. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The reason why this is so important for us is because the way that our representative, the way that the one that we look to for hope and for salvation, the way that He did it, was by saying, what does this say about me? What does this say that I am? What does it say that I'm supposed to do? Okay, it says that I'm supposed to be silent before my accusers. Okay. It's not what I want to do. But this is what I, it's what this says I'm supposed to do. So that's what I'm going to do. What am I supposed to do in this situation? Uh, Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Preach the good news to the poor. That's what I'm supposed to do? Okay. I'm going to do it. This is literally how our Savior lived. He looked into the Word to see who He was and what He was supposed to do and then He did it. He didn't doubt. He wasn't afraid. He just looked at it and said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. In the same way, when Ron Mizrahi is put into the ring with someone, you don't have to convince him to fight. He's not, I don't know, I just... Maybe. I mean, look at him, though. I'm not feeling very good today, and I don't know. I mean, I'm brand new here, and I don't really want to rock the boat or anything like that. It's just... He just looks so big, right? No. He's like, this is what I was trained for. Let's go. Right? Contact, combat. This is what he was trained for. Put me in the ring. I'll take him down. I guarantee you I'll take him down. That's what he was trained for. That's the way that Jesus lived his life. This is what it says about me. I'm, I'm going to go and, and, and cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, and I'm going to bring eternal life to the people and I'm going to give the Holy Spirit Okay. However, it's going to... At some points, is it difficult? Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know what? Nevertheless, let's do it. That's how he lived his life. Different than the way that I thought. I don't know if this is different. I don't know if anything's like, man, that's kind of crazy. I never thought... I don't know if you guys are there. But for me, it's like... I'm looking, I'm like, man, was any part of him God? Yeah, don't worry. We'll get there. We'll get there. But for now... Recognize that you don't have someone as a representative who is unequated with your sufferings and your weakness and your frailty and your exposure. Turn to Hebrews 11.6. It says, without faith it is impossible to please God. Did Jesus please God? And he had faith. (laughs) Look at Hebrews 10.38. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. Kind of looks like faith to me. Kind of looks like Jesus lived in perfect faith. To me, boy, that, that was Jesus, though. I mean, I, I'm just a simple guy. I mean, I, you know, I come from simple people, simple times. Things were simpler. Everything is was just simple. Man, this is your representative. And he says, go make disciples. Go make people that are just like you because you're just like me. I'm about to read something that should blow your mind even though you've read it so many times before. Go to John 17. This is crazy. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. What? These are his disciples. They're not of the world any more than he is of the world. What does that even mean? My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. What does sanctification mean? They're set apart just like he's set apart. Just like we're set apart. They're not of the world just like he wasn't of the world. Just like we're not of the world. Listen to this part. Verse 22. Actually, start in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. He gave us the glory that God gave him. We have the same glory that Jesus got from God the Father. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. Okay, so let's break that down for a second. I in them and you in me. So work backwards. God is then in Jesus and Jesus then is in the fullness of God is in us. The fullness of God is in us. Now you say, I just don't feel like it sometimes though. I just don't feel like I have the fullness of God inside me. Look what he says in verse 6 and chapter 17. I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Listen to how confidently he speaks about the disciples. I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Minutes later, all of them would flee, one guy naked. This is Jesus praying in the garden. He's like, don't worry, God. These are my warriors. These guys are awesome. They're ready to go. These guys are ready to fight. I've been trained. They've been trained. Some guys come. They're like, we've come for Jesus. And And, and they all just run. But he's speaking this over them, isn't he? He's speaking this over them. These are the heroes that are not of the world in the same way that Jesus is not of the world. Ah! Like running in every direction. And then who's at the cross? One guy. One guy. So Jesus looking around like, oh, My God, why have you forsaken me? Go back and look, because in the same way that Jesus knew all the things that he was saying and the way that the rabbis talked, that's the way he talked, and he knew all the scriptures and everything like that. Go back and read the rest of that proverb. It says, my God, that psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if you read to the end, and Jesus always knew what was before and after because he was a good little Jewish boy that learned all the things that he was supposed to learn. And he knew that at the end of that psalm, it said, you will triumph over my enemies, and I will be raised up. So even when it looked like... Is he doubting? My God, why have you forsaken me? He's bringing up that he knows that the rest of the promises will also come true. You talk about your representative who lives by faith, someone training you. I would surmise to you this. Stand up in here if you're 33 or under. Stand up. Jesus could have been any one of these that you see standing around at some point in his life he was your age and he was living by faith now sit down those of you that did not stand up at some point in Jesus' life he encountered other people and what did they say about him who do you think you are we know where you come from we know the things that you do we know your dad. You're only this old. I talked to a, um, to a brother in another state and brought up some things that I felt like the Lord was putting on my heart and uh, shared with him some of my concerns because uh, I felt like the Lord was leading me to do it. And it was a hard word, but it was a word given in love to him. The first thing he responds back to me is, Hey, how old are you? He put me in my place. I'm telling you, at some point, when we encounter the simplicity of who God is, we have a choice to reject it or to receive it. When you look in the mirror, you are looking at someone who is exactly like Christ was. How do I know this? He was like us in every way. When you look into the mirror, all the things that you deal with, except your fear and your doubt, Jesus dealt with. He didn't deal with the consequences of sin because he didn't sin and he calls you not to either. But he dealt with all the other ways that that we could be tempted. He knows how to minister to us effectively. And I believe that if he could speak to us right now one huge message through his word, he'd say, you can do it. You can do it. (laughs) Live by faith live by faith. The things that I say about you, that's who you are. The things that I call you to do, go do those things. And don't doubt and don't be afraid. Just step out and do it. Jesus told us that we would, didn't he? What we're going to do right now is we're going to put on some worship music and we're going to take communion together. But before we do, turn to Colossians 1. Look at verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation this is what God has spoken over you that Jesus shed his blood as a perfect sacrifice given by God so that you could be free from accusation holy and blameless in God's sight and you could actually do the things that it says you're supposed to do And that you could actually believe that you are who this says you are. That's what Jesus did. He didn't have anything up on you. He didn't have anything that you don't have. You have direct access to the Father. Whether you feel like it or not. Three times we hear God speaking to Jesus. Three times. Some of us, if we don't hear God every single day, it's hard for us to continue not sinning. I'm telling you, do what this word says. And you will be blessed. If right now you find yourself in a place where you don't know the Lord, or you would say, I'm not living for Him, don't take communion. Don't worry about it. That's something that's like after. When it comes to right now where you're at with the Lord, what I would tell you this we don't believe in decisionalism, like the idea of let's say a prayer, and then you're good. Here's a book and a card and some flowers, and some candy, and some Easter eggs? No. If you believe the things that you're hearing, and it's affecting your heart, then begin to take inventory of your life. Where am I? Who am I? This doesn't sound like me. But I want to be that person. I want to obey. I want to live like that. Then receive Him. The Word says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. And you demonstrate your faith by what you do. So if you're wanting to begin living for Jesus today, make that decision in your heart and then do what the word says and repent. Literally turn around and go the other way. Do that. And you'll begin to reap blessings for your obedience. Tell someone about that change. Amen? We're going to pray and then everyone go and grab the elements bring them back to your chair, and we're going to take them together as a church. Yeah. Is that cool? Let's do it. I've been taking communion a lot lately. Got a little travel pack. Just take it all the time. Felt like we went for a long time without doing it, and uh, now I feel we're kind of making up for it. So may the Lord forgive us if we've neglected anything. You know, it's moved me every time that I've done it, too. (laughs) I think about the way that he was just torn to pieces. (laughs) I said that he didn't even look like a man. It was hard to even tell that he was human anymore because of the way that he was torn to shreds. And all the blood that poured out, he didn't have to do that. One drop of his blood was enough the healing power in the life that was in one drop of his blood, but he did it. So much of what he did was to equate with our weaknesses and our suffering. And I don't think that he minimizes our suffering. I don't think that he minimizes our weaknesses. I think he says, "No, I get it. I get it. I was betrayed. I was overlooked, I was stomped on. They falsely accused me. I wrestled with anguish. I was overcome with sorrow. I lost friends. I lost people. I dealt with that pain. I think as I remember what he did on the cross and the way that he was acting, the idea that he was living by faith that whole time and just believing that all this would work out the way that God said it would. That was just his faith. That was just his belief. Something about that just moves me. And Heavenly Father, we lift up the bread and we lift up the wine before you. And we say thank you for relating to our weaknesses. Thank you for doing so many things that move us now. When we read about it, it moves us. Notice we read about all the prophecies and the ways that you read about yourself and would have learned about the things that you were to do and then you just obeyed. Man, Lord, may we take on that same attitude. And be willing to humble ourselves and undergo persecution and undergo suffering so that you can receive glory. That's what He did. That is very unsupernatural. That just looks like obedience. So Father, may what you did on the cross, may the sacrifice that you made, may it resonate with us now. Because we know that the consequence of Crucifixion is resurrection. So may we be crucified with Christ now and then knowing that we will also be raised with him. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Take the bread, drink the cup. In two weeks, um, this is kind of on the fly. Um, I'm going to do another idol burning. Is that cool? Many of you guys have come up and gone, I know that I was supposed to burn stuff, but I just, it slipped my mind, and then I thought afterwards. So now's the time. Two weeks from now, after church, we're going to go and we're going to burn stuff again. Whatever else needs to be burned, we're going to burn it all. Everything must burn. It's a fire sale. Amen? So let's pray speak a blessing over you and it'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing in this body. I thank you for my brothers who hold my arms up. Lord, let me hold their arms up when they need me. Jesus, I pray that we would be in unity just as you prayed. We love that the fullness of God is in us because you are in us. So Lord, we just ask that we would awake to what we are called to do, that we would be obedient, that nothing would stand in the way. No idols, no selfishness, no fear, no doubt, no sin. Lord, you have put us in right standing with God and we thank you for that. So we pray that you would bless every family in here. Make your face shine on us. We love you, Father. Thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.